Well, good morning, church. Good morning to the couple of you who responded. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, hey, welcome to LifePoint Church. Uh, so glad to have you, members, regular attenders. Welcome back. If you are a guest this morning, I just want to give you a very special welcome as well. So thankful that you have chosen to join us today. If we haven't met, my name is Paul, and I'm the teaching pastor here. Uh, today, we continue on in week two of a series that we've called Playlist. Uh, and in this series, what we're doing is we're taking five weeks to look at five different psalms. The book of psalms found in the Old Testament, there's 150 of them. And what we see in the book of psalms is a variety of human emotion expressed toward God. And what we also see in the psalms is language uh, that we can use as we, we experience these same emotions in our lives today to express those things to God and to, to talk to God, to speak to God about what it is we are feeling. And so over this five-week series, again now week two, we're looking at these different emotions, these different experiences, and how do we have language to direct what it is we're experiencing to God. Okay, so that's really what we're doing. The, the big idea of this series, something we'll say each and every week, is that God writes the lyrics of our souls in the Psalms. Right? God writes the lyrics of our souls in the Psalms. The Psalms are poetry. Right? They're songs sung to God. And so, that's what we get to do in this series. Today we're going to be in Psalm 42 and 43. Uh, the reason for that being in two Psalms is these Psalms are connected uh, honestly, I'm not really sure why they're divided, but hey, I'm not the one who divided up the chapters of the Bible, so that's how it goes. Psalm 42, Psalm 43, they're very much connected. In these particular psalms, they are psalms of lament, psalms of sorrow, psalms of, of depression, psalms of pain, psalms of agony. And if you look throughout the book of Psalms, what you'll see is about 50 of them, and I'm not great at math, but I think that's about one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, Psalms of sorrow. And so if you are walking through a season of sorrow today, as I know many of us are, I pray that this morning these Psalms are an encouragement to your soul, that God sees you, that God knows you, and that God has directed his word to you. You're not forgotten. And I know some of us have maybe just come out of a dark season or a hard season. Some of us may be about to enter into those seasons. Wherever we are, I pray that these psalms are an encouragement to us this morning. Uh, we're going to approach these two psalms a little bit differently than uh, typically. Uh, most often, um, because I'm not really sure any other way to do it. I don't know if it's just I'm not smart enough to do it. But typically, we just go into the start of the passage and we'll just sort of read through it. Um, today, we're going to do that a little bit differently because of the nature of the content of this. And so I'm going to sort of give us an overview of what this psalmist is experiencing. We're going to ask some questions. We're going to sort of jump around to different verses within these psalms to really, Lord willing, by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, really see what it is God has for us today. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go from there. Father, um, so grateful for this morning. I know we've already prayed, but Lord, we're, we're praying to you now. We're, we're speaking to you now, asking that you would... You would send your spirit to open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts to see what your word has, that we would see it, we would understand it, we would be transformed by it, and that in our gathering together as the church, you, Father, would be glorified, your name would be magnified, and we would find peace in our souls. Lord, we need you, we love you, get me out of the way, help me teach clearly what your word says. It's in Christ's name that I pray, amen. 
All right, so this particular psalm is written by a guy named Korah. Well, he's a son of Korah. We don't really know his first name. Uh, the sons of Korah wrote many psalms uh, throughout the book of Psalms, and they have an interesting history. You can go into the Old Testament to sort of dig through that, but these guys were really worship leaders for the people of Israel. They would sing songs to God and in a loud voice. And I love, actually, um, in 2 Chronicles twenty nineteen, it says, The Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And some of you might have been here this morning and you're thinking, wow, those speakers are really loud. Um, it's biblical evidence for, for why. Right? It's always encouraging, I think, when you look through the Old Testament and you see, hey, we're not really doing things much differently. Sure, it might be a different environment. It like, might look a little bit different, but we're actually doing the same things that, that generations of God's followers have done. And that, that, to me, that's just encouraging. So anyway, this guy, he's writing this psalm. And I just want to give us a little bit of his situation. We see that Psalm 42, beginning in verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng to lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festivals. Right, a multitude-keeping festival. So what would happen in Israel is when the people were going to worship God, they would get into like a giant conga line uh, or something like that. I don't know. There's a large procession. It's what I'm going to go with. And this son of, uh, the sons of Korah would be in the front, and they would be leading the people to the temple where they would worship God. They would all gather together. There would be music and dancing and joy, and he was a leader of this procession. But what we see, there's a key word. He says, I remember And so what that tells us is that's not his current situation. He's not currently in a situation where he is leading the people of God to be in the presence of God, to worship God with the people of God. He's been separated. He's been cut off. And we really don't know exactly what has happened to him, but he does give us his present reality. The second half of verse 5 in Psalm 42 says this, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, and of Hermon, the Mount of Mizar. The Mount of Mizar. And so what we can tell here, if you, if you were to go into Google Maps and you were to Google map a, a trip from Mount Hermon to Jerusalem, you'd see it's about a 200-mile drive. And so this guy, who's usually with the people of God in the presence of God, worshiping God, he's now 200 miles away from everybody, separated, cut off, and his soul is distressed as a result of this. And we don't exactly know why, but I think as you look through the text, you see he's being held captive. He's certainly there against his will. Again, we don't really know, but, but we see this in verse, in verse 3. He says this, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? We get this indication that maybe he's been held captive. He's been taken prisoner. We, again, we don't really know. Verse 9 says, Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Psalm 43, verse 1 begins with this, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Psalm 42, verse 9 says, why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And again, we don't know the circumstances. Maybe he was traveling and he was taken captive. 
Maybe he went to visit a sick loved one. The loved one died and the people who are surrounding him believe in other gods. And so they're looking at him and saying, if your God was really God, if your God really was who you say he is and who you think he is, why would he let this hard thing happen to you? They're taunting him. They're throwing it in his face that he's stuck where he does not want to be. Now, we do though, now that we know his circumstance and his situation, I do want to really walk through his his emotion. What is it that he wants? Well, Psalm 42 opens like this in verses 1 and 2. He says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This is all he wants. He just wants to be in the very presence of God. His, his soul is panting for God, and yet... Again, verse 3 of Psalm 42, my tears have been my food day and night. Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He literally feels like he's drowning. All he wants is to be with God, and yet he feels like he's drowning. And I, I don't know if you noticed, but who did he attribute the waves and the breakers to? Your. Your waves, God. Your breakers, God. Verse 9 says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Verse 2 of Psalm 43, he takes that even further. He says, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? I think in this we see a tension, don't we? It's my God. Why have you rejected me? I want to be with you. I'm cut off from you. Why have you forgotten me? There's this tension where he knows who God is. He loves God, and yet it feels like God is absent. God is silent, and he's all alone. And I think, church, again, some of us feel that this morning. We're following God. We're trying to be obedient to who God is. We're trying to love God, and yet life has beaten us down and broken us, and we're asking God, where are you? Let's just be honest. Hopefully this is a place where we can be honest. We've probably all been in situations like this where we're asking, God, where are you? And if you're not in it right now, you've been in it. And if you're not in it right now and you've been in it, you probably will be in it in the future. God, where are you? And so what I want to do, church, as reverently as possible, this is not a light subject. I do not take this lightly. I want to walk through what the psalmist does. I want to walk through what the scriptures say when we find ourselves in a position of pleading to the Lord and feeling like he doesn't hear us and he doesn't see us and we feel like we're drowning. And we're asking, where are you, God? So what does the psalmist do? The word of God always directs us, church. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. As the word of God brings up pain and tension and hard questions, the word of God resolves, soothes, and eases that pain and answers those very questions it demands we ask. Once again, Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1 and 2, what does he do with this question? Where are you, God? As a deer pants for flowing streams, and I know we already read this, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So what does this show us? That comfort comes in the presence of God. If we're looking for comfort, if we're desiring comfort, comfort comes in the presence of God. Again, that's all that he wants. He wants to be in the presence of God. That's where he's going to find comfort for his soul. 
You know, this past week, um, my wife and I, we were hanging out with a bunch of friends on Thursday night, and uh, we were at uh, somebody else's house, and we had just great food, like somebody roasted like an entire pig or something. I mean, it was just wonderful, right? It was a great time. Ate probably too much. Anyway, so I don't know why I'm going into those details, but I come out with like a fourth plate of food, gluttony, I probably, and um, I'm, I'm about to, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm holding my food, I'm trying to not spill it, and, and I, I, I close the door, and as I'm closing the door, I forgot that my two-year-old son, Liam, is behind me, and he happened to be investigating the hinges of the door at that time. And so I'm closing the door, and I close his fingers in the door, like the, the hard, not like where the two French doors meet, but like the hinge door part, like that's real sharp right there. And he screams bloody murder as, as I would too. He's two years old. And so I feel horrible. I'm picking him up. He's screaming. He's beside himself in pain. He is enveloped in pain. I'm trying to comfort him. He wants nothing to do with me, by the way. And what was fascinating, thinking back on this moment as I was processing through this text, in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the screaming, do you know what consumed my son's mind? Mommy. Right? I am hurting. I am in pain. He's not screaming, my fingers, my fingers. He's screaming, mommy, mommy. And he's reaching out to mommy. Why? Because mommy has been the constant source of comfort, day in and day out, night in and night out. Mommy has always been there. Sure, the pain was in his mind. Sure, the anger at dad, how could you do this to me, was there. But what was front on his frontal lobe was, I need to get to mom because when I get to mom, somehow I will feel comfort. And church, I believe that God designed our souls in a similar way. Just as, as, a, as a little one just cries out for mommy when they're hurt, and when they know mommy's there, our souls in the midst of the waves and the wind and the crashing and the storm, deep within, they cry out for God because we know he's there. And God designed and created our souls in such a way that only he can be the one to ultimately comfort us. And yet, church, how often do we try to go to other things to bring our souls comfort? We go to distractions. We go to other people. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk to other people. We 100% should. But ultimately, church, we need to understand that our soul was designed, created by God for God. And the greatest soul comfort, not soul food, but the greatest soul comfort will come when we run to God in the midst of trial and in the midst of hardship. So I think that's number one. We have to understand that comfort comes from the presence of God. And you know what's amazing? Through faith in Christ, what's the scripture promise us? That he has given us his Holy Spirit as, a, as an inheritance, as really a down payment to say, hey, you are mine. What that means is that God presence, God's presence dwells within you. And so at any time, God is right there. Of course, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But we can experience deep, intimate relationship with God because he is with us. Jesus promised us, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Now, continuing on, again, as we're asking this question, what is it that we do? 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says this, and I think it very much supports what we just talked about. The Apostle Paul says this, Praise be to the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in trouble, in any trouble, with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So number one, comfort comes from God. He's the God of all comfort. That's amazing. We serve the God of all comfort. Just like, amen, praise the Lord. You're allowed to speak in church. It's great. And um, then from there, he says, now there's another, another source of comfort I think we saw here. He says, look, we are comforted from God so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And so what I believe is being said here, and I think we also see this um, in, in the psalmist when he's, he's missing the, the presence of the people, right? He's saying, I used to be at the front of the conga line going to the temple to worship Jesus, and I miss that experience. I miss the people of God. And so what we can see here is that comfort comes through godly community. Right? Comfort absolutely, first and foremost, has to come from the presence of God himself, but comfort can also come in the form of godly community. We need people. We need to be known by people. We need to know people. It's a two-way street. The, the, way that this, um, the way that this plays out here at this church, um, I don't know about you, but not even in this church. Let me re- restart that statement. I don't know. Uh, does anybody ever get asked, how you doing? And you say, good. All of us, right? We're walking. How you doing? Great. Uh, how you doing this morning? Really good, really good. But I think a lot of us, even when I ask that to you this morning uh, on a Sunday morning or when we're walking in our neighborhood or whatever, we say good, but our reality looks like this meme. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen this one. Here we go. Um, that's our reality oftentimes, right? People ask us, how you doing? Doing great. But in the reality, our, our background is, is exploding. Our life is a train wreck. We're in turmoil. But people ask us, how you doing? Great. Doing really good. This is fine. Isn't that, isn't that what we do? And, and as I say that, what, what, I, what I don't want to say is, you can, you can take that down, that's good. Um, as I say that, I, I think there's wisdom when somebody asks you who you don't really know. You, you need to have some situational awareness. You need to have some, some relational awareness. If you don't know somebody and they ask how you're doing and then all of a sudden you word vomit everything going on, like maybe that's not the best place to do it, Right? But at the same time, what I will say is we need to be able to have relationships where when people ask us, hey, how's it going? We need to be able to respond with, I'm struggling right now. We need to have relational safety with people and trust with people to be able to say, I'm hurting right now. We need to be able to have the depth of trust to speak into other people's lives when they're hurting. And the way we do that in this church, we don't do it perfectly. But the way we do that most effectively, we pray, is through life groups. I'll be, uh, right now there's, I don't know, 60 people sitting in the room, something like that. And depending on your church background, maybe that sounds like hardly any people, or maybe that sounds like a lot of people. And I think sometimes in the American view of the church, what we've said is that it is the pastor's responsibility to meet the spiritual needs of everybody in the church. And I just want to be real clear with you. My role, it is an honor to be called pastor. It's an honor to have this quote-unquote office. Absolute honor. But my primary job, this is my job here, my first job is to love Jesus. If I stop that, let me know. My job is to love my wife. My job is to love my children. My job is to pray for you. 
My job is to plead with the Lord for your well-being, for your souls, for your sanctification, for your salvation. That's something I take very seriously. My job is to faithfully, week in and week out, unless somebody else is teaching, study the Word of God and deliver it to you as I see the Word of God is, and the Holy Spirit working in me to, to pull out what it is actually saying. That's my job, is to faithfully teach the Word of God. My job is to faithfully meet with, if you're in the hospital and you're, you're sick, call me. I'd love to come pray with you. If your marriage is falling apart, call me. I want to pray with you and I want to get you to a specialist. Right? If you're going through a hard season, I want to meet with you. I want to walk alongside you. I want to pray with you. I want to plead with the Lord on behalf of you, but I will fail you if I'm the only one. I cannot, church, meet every single need that you have. Hear me say, I want to pray for you. I want to be alongside you as much as I possibly can, but just in a church of, of 125 or 150, I don't know, whatever we are, I can't do it all. Our staff can't do it all. And so that's why, church, we must create community differently. And that's why I'm going to point us back to life groups. You see, in life groups, it's a small group of people. And if it gets too, too big, if there's 20 plus people, all of a sudden what happens is that as more people enter the group, which is a great thing, the relational intimacy and depth typically decreases. And so what we do here, we, we say we need to multiply that group. Not split, multiply the group. It's just the language, right? We need to multiply that group into two groups. So all of a sudden that relational intimacy and depth can increase and therefore, you can have genuine and authentic community so people know you and people see you. And if I call one of our life group leaders and say, hey, what's going on in your life group right now? That life group leader should be able to say, oh, they're going through this. They're walking through this. We just met and talked about this. Your life group leader should be the first line of ministering to your soul. But if you're not in a group, if you're not connected relationally with other people, you're going to be missing the comfort of God in the form of other people who have maybe walked through the same storm that you're walking through right now. We need other people in this thing. The world is broken, the world is messy, the world is hard. And we need, according to the Apostle Paul, to be people who have received the comfort of God and then give that comfort to others. There's a new term of life groups coming up May 7th, and throughout the summer, we meet every other week. Your call to action here, if you are not yet plugged into a group, and I'm saying this not so we can say, we've got 97% of people in life groups. I'm saying this because I want your soul to be cared for. I'm going to do the best I possibly can. I'm going to give it everything I've got. But you need other people too. So email Ben Miller, Ben M. If you're not yet plugged into a life group, Ben Miller is our campus life pastor. He oversees all of our life groups. Send him an email and say, I, Paul yelled at me about life groups, and so here I am. Right? And we want to try and get you plugged in. I know life's busy. I know the first time you walk in that door, you're going to be like, this is awkward, this is weird. Yeah, it is the first time. But I'm telling you it's worth it. And I'm telling you, you will know people, and people will know you. Now, going on from there, we've covered two things, right? We've covered that, that comfort comes from the presence of God. We've talked about how comfort comes really in community, and specifically godly community, not just any community, but people who are pointing you to Jesus. That's an important distinction. Now, getting back to the text, I want us to see here a couple of things. So in Psalms 42 and 43 throughout, uh, three times the psalmist repeats this um, 
almost like a chorus. I don't know my musical terms. Brad can correct me later. But it's this sort of refrain. I don't know, something. I'm, I'm, I'm out of my depth. Anyway, he says this. He says, Where, uh, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He goes through this, I feel like I'm drowning. God, why have you abandoned me? God, why is this hard? And he says, he says this, why are you cast down, soul? He's like, I know the truth. I know the truth is that God hasn't abandoned me. I know the truth is that God is with me. I know the truth is that God will deliver justice on those who have oppressed me. I know the truth, and yet when I wake up in the morning, I feel horrible. Anybody wake up in the morning sometimes, and you're like, this just isn't the day. Anybody wake up in the morning, like, I feel depressed. I feel angry. I feel selfish, whatever it is. Sometimes you just wake up and it's like, just stay away from me. And in those seasons and in those moments, this is what the psalmist does. He says to his soul, stop it. <laughs> and he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Comfort comes when we preach the truth to our souls. We've got to preach the truth to ourselves because the world will preach all sorts of other things to us. The world, like the psalmist in his world, will say, where is your God? Find satisfaction elsewhere. You don't need God. Do whatever it is you want to do. And no, 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 hope in God. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, there was a, in the 1800s, uh, an English preacher named Charles Spurgeon. It's a cool photo of Spurgeon here. I, feel, I wish we still took pictures like this, you know? I feel like that'd be cool, or did paintings. Anyway, Spurgeon, he was known as the Prince of Preachers. He was dynamic, he was powerful. The Lord used him. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were saved in response to the words that God gave Charles Spurgeon through preaching. He founded um, orphanages, he founded a college, he wrote like 150 books, which, I mean, how do you even do that? Have I even read 150 books? I mean, the dude is just, he's prolific, absolutely prolific. He's like, when it comes to, to pastors, like, that's the dude. And yet, he was crushed by depression, absolutely crushed by depression. And his critics would say, oh, it's some kind of judgment against you, Spurgeon. He would say, no, 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 no. Hope in God. And then he would quote to himself, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He would say, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in his notebook, in his journal, he said this in response to this passage. He said, when the gold knows why and wherefore it is in the fire, it will thank the refiner for putting it into the crucible and will find a sweet satisfaction even in the flames." See, church, in the midst of crushing circumstances, we have to understand that God, he knows. He's not going to just let you die on the vine. If you're connected to the vine, if you're connected to Christ, God is going to sustain you. And when you see that in these circumstances and in this situation, like God is, 
He's using it somehow. I don't understand it. I don't see it. God, why? Like the psalmist, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you rejected me? We have to preach to our own souls there is a purpose for it, that God is sovereign over it, and that God works, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 28, all things for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. It's a promise of Scripture. We need to preach the promises of Scripture to ourselves in the midst of difficult circumstances so that we can continue to endure. We can continue to remain faithful. We can find hope in God, even in the midst of hardship and even in the midst of trial. Comfort comes when we preach truth to our souls. Now, lastly, I want to direct us to Psalm 43, verses 30, excuse me, Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4. I say this The psalmist says, Send out your light and your truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Again, I just want us to see this. Remember, the whole context here is he's cut off. He's distant. He's far away. He just wants to get back to God. And what I love about what he does, he he gives us two things that he knows will lead him back to God. I don't know if you noticed them. He says, send out your light and your truth. Your light, God, and your truth, God, will lead me back to you where I will worship you. Well, you know what's really, really cool? Jesus said in the New Testament that all of Scripture was written about him and points to him. And so as the psalmist is saying, send out your light, send out your truth, did anybody else... Oh, Jesus said he's the light of the world. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. And so all of a sudden, if we're feeling this distance, if we're feeling far away, if we're feeling cut off, if we're feeling separated, what we need to do is focus our hearts and our mind on Christ, who is the light that will guide our path and who is the life that will connect us to the Father. Amen. Like, It's really, really good news that Jesus is the way to the Father, and we have to see it, and we have to cling to it in the moments of hardship, in the moments of trial, in the moments of just being beaten down. He's the light of the world, and he will light our way back to the Father. He's the truth. Nobody comes to God except through Christ. There's no other way. There is no other way way, except through Jesus. And so maybe you haven't yet said, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, and you feel cut off, and you feel distanced, and you feel like, what is happening in my soul? Your soul is longing for God, just like my two-year-old son was longing for his mother. And the way you get to God is through Jesus, God in the flesh, who bore our sins on the cross, who took your shame away, so that when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see sinful, broken, messy you. He sees the spotless blood of Christ in your place. He sees Jesus in your place. And for those of us, and I know there are so many, being consumed by the waves and the turmoil and the hurt of this world, I just want to encourage you and plead you, plead with you to cling to Jesus. Because he will light your way. He will give you life because he promises 
to do so. And all of his promises are true. Why? Because he walked out of the grave after three days. And because Jesus walked out of the grave after three days, that means, church, without a doubt, you and I can have life. We have spiritual life today, and one day we will physically walk out of the grave because of Jesus. And that, that should give our souls hope, comfort, courage in the midst of the dark season. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word this morning. I'm personally encouraged by it. Um, Father, I'm really grateful uh, that you give us such clear language, such clear ways to think through the various challenges that we experience in life. And I pray, I ask you, Father, please send your spirit to us. Send your spirit in a special way to the ones in the dark season right now, the ones who are hurting, the ones who feel like they're drowning, the ones who feel like you've forgotten them. Just comfort them and hold them in a really unique way this morning, Father. Help them see you. Help them feel connected to you. Help them feel like a little child being held in a time of pain. Cause them to see that you haven't forgotten them, that you have not forsaken them. Give them hope found in the light of the world, in the way, the truth, and in the life. It's you, Jesus. Father, we trust you this morning. We're so grateful that you are with us, that you do not abandon us, that in all things you work them for good for those who love you. Continue to lead us this morning. Continue to lead us this week as we go into the world to live out the gospel, that people would see our lives and they would see something different. And that difference, Jesus, would be you. In the midst of hardship, we would have hope because, Jesus, of what you've done. It's in your name, mighty Jesus, that we pray. Amen.